you said this before we started, and I think it's so true that the things that we do not mourn having missed for two years, those things were not important. And the things that are important, like being able to be together in a classroom or being able to do purposeful work or what have graduation or whatever, the things that we missed, those we can be sure of are valuable, right? Because it's, it's not like we didn't do it for two years and we're like, who cares about that? That's stupid. Why do we even do graduation? It's dumb. Like it, right. We were like, oh my goodness, that is really, really important. And as soon as we can, we have to get back to that. Good afternoon, everyone, or whatever time of day it is uh, that you're joining us. This is episode number 48 of Cap and Gown. I'm Rachel Phillips Buck, VP for Student Success at Ferris Resources. I'm going to wait for everybody to slowly trickle in. Good to see you guys. Uh, For those of you who are joining us later on podcast, thank you so much for spending time with us. Brian, I haven't seen you in forever. I hope you're doing well. I can tell that we are at the end, at the very end of the semester because I'm seeing more and more of you pop up, which means I think you were in this like blissful time between when finals happen. And I think there's like two or three weeks after the students go home where it's just like, you can be super focused and you can get tons of stuff done. And then if you're like me, I start to miss them. I'm like, okay, that was good, but can they come back, please? Because I like spending time with them. So good to see you all joining me. Um, We have as our guest today, Dr. Sherry Woosley, who is one of my favorite guests. And she and I are going to be talking about establishing a purpose in your work. And we're going to talk about that both for our students and how we use language to do that for them. And then also coming back and doing a little uh, self-care for those of us who are in higher education. And so it's going to be a great conversation, like always, really excited about that. Um, But let's start, as we always do, with State of the Union. So you guys, there's an article in the Chronicle. It's called The Uneven Climb from College to Career. I'm not going to go over in depth here, but I would really recommend you find it and read it and share it. It's kind of a conglomeration of everything we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks. So you remember we talked about the hidden curriculum in finding, being successful in college and then getting jobs. We talked about how important internships are, how necessary it is that our um, college students know how to leverage a network and even are granted access. We've talked about pay disparities. So this article goes through everything that we've talked about and just puts it together in a really great narrative that um, is a compelling case for why career is so important on our college campuses. So I think it's a great article. It's full of facts um, and it would be a really good one to either share with the Career Center so they can make their case or just to have a conversation on campus about how this idea of career um, is becoming really at the top of the narrative for so many college students and parents, um, given what's happening in the economy and all sorts of things that have that have come out of COVID. So I highly recommend that article. I think it's going to be really powerful for you guys. Um, the next one is related in that we have got to do a better job 
of informing our students about the world of work. You know, this is the world that um, Matt and I came out of, and Sherry has a lot of experience with this, helping students with career exploration and readiness. But I don't know if you saw today uh, in USA Today, um, they did a survey of, let's see, I think it's like, uh, I don't see the number of how many students they surveyed. But they did, oh, a thousand surveys, uh, a thousand students. So they did a survey of a thousand students. Of those students, they expected, students expected to make $103,888 in their first job after graduation, which is almost double what the actual average is. And we were talking about this, Matt and I were talking about this beforehand, 55,000 is the national average for a start. That's a starting salary for college graduates, which still seems very high to me. Um, the summary is that undergraduate students underestimate their starting salaries by 88%. Um, so Journalism students, for example, expected to make 139% more than the median journalist starting salary. So they thought they'd make $107,000. The actual starting salary is more like $44,000. This continued into 10 years from graduation. So they asked them, what do you expect to make 10 years into your career? Um, they expected to make $200,000, but in reality, the average salary is $132,000. So there's a lot of conversation that needs to be had with these students to just help them benchmark and understand what's going on. When I work with students in career, I would send them to ONET, which those of you who do career stuff, you know, and it will tell you, here's how much money you're going to make. And here's whether or not this job is going to be around in five or 10 years. So great conversations for us to have. You just set students up for disappointment if their number is so much bigger than when they start looking for jobs and they're like, what's going on with this salary? So, and that's a great article um, to be having conversations about. Another interesting thing, I don't know if you guys saw this article, how a small university flipped 150 acres. So I guess it's a story of success. There's a school, um, which is Gwented Mercy University they had a huge master plan, and in 2018, 150 acres next to their campus went up for sale, which they bought for $12 million. They were really excited. They were going to build all these new buildings. Um, fast forward three years, <clears throat> and the value of the land went up so much that they sold it for $31.5 million, and they got a grant to help them build their new buildings. They decided just to do it on their, their main campus. So they got a $10 million grant to build those buildings. So in the space of three years, they made $29 million on that investment, which is pretty interesting. Um, it's an a interview with the president, and basically all of the questions are like, hey, so is there anything you can tell other schools about how to do this? And he's like, no, it was just really good luck. We were just really fortunate to buy at the right time and to sell at the right time. So that's a win for them. Congratulations. Um, okay, I have two more for you. The first one is about um, this uh, gentleman who's 22 years old, who is featured in Fortune Magazine and Fast Company. He was accepted by MIT, Yale, and Stanford. He decided to go to MIT because they gave him a full ride. He is on TikTok. His handle is at go, G-O-H-A-R-S, and then guide. Um, he has 1.7 million followers, 
and he creates videos instructing academically minded students on how to do their homework faster, how to ace essays, how to improve their memorization, how to do well in a multiple choice test. His highest traffic video received 6.9 million views. And it's part of his How to Find the Motivation for School series. So it's a four-part mini-series that details how to use techniques such as positive visualization, blah, 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 blah. Okay, so first of all, my first piece of the story is if you need resources for your students, for your freshmen, for your upper-level students, you don't have to recreate the wheel. This is a great vehicle where somebody is going in. He's super relatable. He has great experience. And he has a lot of really interesting things to say. The other thing, though, that he's done is he has just created um, something called Net uh, Next Admit, which is a college admis admissions counseling company. Um, they launched it in October of 2020. I love this because he was a first generation college student and he was like, I felt like I was totally alone in going through this process. And also when I looked for people to try to help me, it was so expensive. I couldn't do any of it. So they basically specialize in essay reviews, college application reviews, consultant, uh, consulting calls and writing sessions. Um, but I love that as we're trying to find people for our students to look at and be like, look how successful look at that person who made it through. That's the path that I want to traverse. I think this will be a great resource for you. So go check him out. Um, and then the last one, you guys, we are going to talk a lot about language today. You know, I get very excited about it. I, I love language. I love playing with language, but I also really like being careful with language and understanding um, the importance of it and the ways that we use it. So there's an article that I would really recommend for you to read all of. It's Inside Higher Ed. Um, it's called Low Income Students Don't Owe Donors Their Stories. It's an opinion piece written by um, a student. And the story basically is that like on so many campuses, this student who is, I would say, not representative of the majority student population on this campus, started getting emails from financial aid asking if they would tell their story of what the scholarship that they got meant to them. And so they were asking this because they wanted to then be able to tell donors because it's a really compelling way to get our donors to give more money. And the student's response was really about how it made them feel like they didn't belong on that campus because it was, they, they were kind of being treated like an outlier, like, oh, your story is so interesting given the kinds of students we serve, can we tell everybody? And so there were reflections, a couple of sentences from this piece. Um, they say, students who did not receive the email were not subject to the additional responsibility or pressure to share their personal experiences with donors. Uh, students who did not receive the email were not reminded of their existence at this elite institution as an anomaly. Instead, minimizing differences between low-income students and our peers, the institution, through this practice, uh, kind of puts a magnifying glass on these differences um, and increases our sense of estrangement. It says, this message ultimately makes clear the transactional relationship between low-income students and the institution early on. And so they go on to say, I'm happy to tell my story if it helps you identify places where you can do better, places where I don't feel like I was seen 
or I wasn't supported. But when you tell me you need to tell your story so that we can get more money, it makes me feel like I don't belong at this institution. So I just think it's so well articulated and comes back to something that we talk about all the time, which is unintended consequences. You can understand why these stories would be really powerful. And yet there are these subtle messages that are being sent um, through that whole process that makes uh, a student feel like, I don't know. I mean, why are you asking for my story? I don't know if I actually belong, if it's such an a interesting story to tell. So highly encourage you to go uh, look at that. That is the State of the Union, which means that I get to welcome my guest. Hey. Hey. How are you today? I'm fine. I'm excited that you brought up that that last story because I saw that one. Yeah. And and it, it's hard, isn't it? Because it is an inspirational piece, but it's there. Yeah, that's right. And then the, then the unintended message as well. Yeah, yeah that's right. I really, um, I think it's why the idea that we create space for people to tell their experiences is so important because I know the people who ask for that story had only the best intentions, but you have to have space for someone to come back and say, that makes me feel really bad when you do that. I don't like it. Yeah. So even the, I mean, we sometimes do that to specific students over and over and over again. And, you know, how do we broaden out those stories? How do we make sure that there's variety there? Yeah. Um, and there's safe ways to say no. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a great point. Okay, so we are going, sorry, I didn't, Matt just sent me a card that's like, you didn't introduce Sherry. Everyone, this is Dr. Sherry Wesley. Um, she, I think my introduction of you is always that you're just brilliant. And we are all enriched every time we spend time with you. Is there something you want me to add to that introduction or is that an okay introduction? No, and I feel the same about you guys, which is why I'm here so often. So it works out great, doesn't it? Awesome, awesome. Um, okay, so we get to talk today about establishing a purpose. You guys will remember that we're working on the culture code. I told Sherry when we were talking about this, I'm kind of like, you know that I'm raving about this book. I, I adore the first two pieces that we've talked about sending belonging cues, moving from connection or from danger brain to connection brain, um, making sure that we are, you know, setting up our teams for success and all that stuff. I've loved all of that. This last piece, which is about establishing a purpose, I got a little bit bogged down in um, because I think we talk about it so often in higher education. It is a, a profession that has purpose so much at the center of it. Um, it's what draws us to it. It's what gives us life. We, I think for the most part, don't get confused about how important what we're doing is. So I think we talk about it a lot, but there are a couple of um, elements from the book that I want to bring into our conversation. So one thing is when we're talking about establishing a purpose, this is for your teamwork or for your students or for whatever you're doing they refer to it as a pattern of signals that are constantly communicating, here we are and here's where we're going. And I love that framework. Um, I think it, it resonates with the connection part that I'm always talking about, where you're looking at a person across from you and you're like, here we are. This is the space that we're in together, right? This is the transition we're in together. This is the rhythm of the academic year, whatever that is. This is where we are. 
and then moving through all of the obstacles to be able to convey this. And this is where we're going together. Um, and, you know, I think higher education in general is pretty good at this. Do you agree with that? I, I do. I think, I, I think higher ed is clear on it's well, is is clear at the high level of the purpose, right? Our yeah. purpose is is to really educate students and change lives and do those things. I think where you see disconnects is either when you go down a few levels or when you talk to students because that's not their vision. Right. Yeah, that's a I really mean, good their their vision, some of them it's to get an education. Some of them, it's a job. Some of them aren't clear on their vision. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think part of, it's a tightrope act, isn't it? Because you're you're trying to deliver vision Mm -hmm. to your students. You're trying to say you can be successful and you're going to get, and you're going to learn how to think and you're going to be able to get a career and all of those things. And yet- they do come with their own vision sometimes and that's okay. It's okay for them them to. Yeah. right? (laughs) So we think of, we should in those individual spaces be creating shared vision. Right. So then the question is how do we do community vision? Yeah, that's exactly right. So I love this pattern of signals because this, this word of signals is these little subtle ways that we're just nudging and showing. And I like thinking of it in a positive sense, because we've talked before about how easy it is to give negative signals. You don't belong. You should be ashamed. You're doing a terrible job. Right. Um, but the time and space, and I was thinking, I, Debbie's joined us. I see her participating And I was thinking about how many of you, just like Debbie, are thinking this summer of like reorienting, reorganizing, changing things that through this process of language audits and all those things, you're like, hey, I don't think we do that great. So many of you have said, which you'll love this, um, Sherry, the change from academic probation to academic recovery. Yes, please. So many of you have been like, why do we call it academic probation? It's so awful, right? But I love this idea as we're coming up on the summer that there are little processes and little signals that you can go back and say, hey, we're going to do that in a really um, different way. And part of that process is capturing your use of storytelling, right? Um, I love telling stories so much. I really do. It's like, I love fun stories, but I also find so much power comes through not telling the facts, but actually telling the story. Um, And people remember it. I was thinking, I have college professors that told me stories that I still tell today because they made such an impact on my brain. And I don't remember a lot of what my faculty members lectured about, but I do remember their stories. You know what I mean? So we actually have been talking about storytelling in assessment circles for a while, because it can be such a powerful way to share data. And um, it was fascinating to me to go back and look at definitions for stories. Stories are narrative, cohesive narrative, start to finish. Mm-hmm. That's why, that's one of the reasons you remember them is there's, 
it's not just little pieces, it's the narrative. Another reason you remember them is um, they often hit emotions. Yeah. And we remember emotions. Um, and then the other thing I would say that I think is really powerful that we sometimes forget about stories is stories are interactive. They create a connection between the storyteller and the audience. Yeah. And the wild part to me is um, in assessment presentations, we begin and I say, what are your favorite stories? And the whole room perks up and somebody shouts out Harry Potter and other people go, yeah, Harry Potter. And suddenly there's this shared experience. And then I go, let's talk assessment. And everybody goes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be a downer. It just changes the whole nature of the conversation to talk about fun things and to say, oh, even if it's not fun, I like, you know, sometimes I'll say TV shows and somebody will say Real Housewives and other people will go, yeah, this one, but not that one. And like, suddenly yeah. there's this connection. That's so that's good. So, so this is, this is in this book. I want to okay. read it to you. It says, we tend to use the word story casually as if stories and narratives were decorations for some unchanging underlying reality. The deeper neurological truth is that stories do not cloak reality, but create it, triggering cascades of perception and motivation. The proof is in brain scans. When we hear a fact, a few isolated areas of our brain light up, translating words and meanings. When we hear a story, our brains light up like Las Vegas, tracing the chains of cause and effect and meaning and feeling. Stories are not just stories. They are the best intervention uh, invention ever created for delivering mental models that drive behavior. Behavior. So it's exactly what you're saying, Sherry, that we say story like it's a cat, like a, like a kid's kid thing. Kids, kids like stories, right? Yeah. Yeah. But in actuality, the stories we tell and the ways that we tell them reflect a really deep fundamental belief about things. Um, and there's such a shortcut. I, I don't know if, if you've had this experience, but there are stories. I'm the storyteller in my family. So I, from my Phillips side of the family, have tons of childhood stories that I tell. I have tons of stories that I tell Lillian and she will come to me and say, will you tell me a story about Red, my mom? And I have found they are such a powerful shortcut to talk about a truth without yeah. having to say the truth. You know what I mean? Like when I tell you a story about a person, you have a full understanding of that person based on what happened in the story that I'm telling you. Um, a really good story shows you things. It doesn't tell yeah. you anything. Yeah. So we don't say they're really good or unhappy people make bad decisions. Right. We right. Show it to you. And you watch it and you go, yeah. Right? Yeah, that's really funny. It's like what happens when we say, and the moral of the story is like, hey, in case that was a bad story and you weren't paying any attention, I'm going to tell you what I just told you without saying the words. But yeah, that's exactly well, right. And haven't you ever like had a kid tell you a story and you're like, uh-oh, I don't know what the moral is. <laughs> right? Yeah. Because like, it does, it's not clear. And you're like, I don't know. Am I supposed to not like that person? Am I supposed to think that they are not very like, tell me, help me here. Yes. Um, You're telling yes. me this because, right. What are we supposed to do? What's so, my reaction supposed to be? Am I supposed yeah. to be outraged with you or like, 
which speaks to this idea. One of the powerful things about storytelling is how you frame things. And like we were just saying, we, we tell our students stories. If we're doing a good job, we're telling them just like we would do to our kids, not about the adult perspective, but about their perspective about what it's like when they go to college, about what it's like when they experience hardships. And I think it's a great tool to maybe uncover when we don't have students at the center, because if we think about a really messy registration process where we're telling the story of how you register, like, and then Sherry needs you to do this thing. And then Rachel needs you to do this thing. And then Matt needs you to do this thing. Right. Versus telling the story like, hey, your student going to go to one place and all of these people are going to be there and they're going to help you complete your process. It uncovers our, our processes that are not student centric, right? When we're talking about it, like, and then I need them to blah, 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 blah. And they're like, I don't, that, that framing is not going to work for me. The other thing about the the contrast you just put together, if you go back to this sort of cohesive narrative, the first one was peace, 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 peace. There is no cohesive narrative. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas a true story, I mean, this step leads to this step and you notice when this step goes to this step and you're like, wait, what? And either it's going to be a mystery and it's going to come back and you're going to go, oh, that's why that (laughs) was why. Yeah. Or it's not going to come back and you're going to go, what was that scene? Why did I do that? That's so good, Sherry. You think about students being like, sorry, why did I do that thing? Because it's not, because it's like, that has nothing to do with anything that's in my life versus this is how we're setting you up for success in this process, right? I really love that. Um, I also was thinking about on a campus stories that we don't tell and how, again, I think that shines a light on a, I I don't know what it uncovers for us, the stories we don't tell, because there could be a lot of different reasons that we don't tell those stories. But I definitely think if you have stories that you don't tell on campus, it's a place to pay very close attention. It should be a stop sign for you where you go, hold on a second. I was just working with the campus where Um, they basically, they told me, Hey, we have a referral program, but we never tell students the name of it. Cause they had named it something like, you know, stoplight or you're in trouble or something crazy like that. And they're like, we never tell students that that's what it is. We're very careful to avoid it. And I was like, hold on, (laughs) should come up with a different name. If that's not a story we want to tell, we need to stop for a minute and say, why is that? Because it's painful because it's embarrassing, because it sends the wrong signal. Why are we not speaking about everything that's happening on our campus, right? And so it's okay to signal that that's what it is to our little inner circle, but not to everybody else. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, And Sherry, I was thinking about how this bid for vulnerability how part of what we're trying to say is like, we want to be vulnerable and we want to have this vulnerability loop. And I was thinking about, I have a story from my childhood that was really painful and I don't like talking about it. And yet when my daughter went through a really similar thing, I found her telling the story 
Like I was telling her my story of when this happened to me and I don't tell people that story, but it was so powerful in this place where she has a similar experience to open up my vulnerability and say, I'm going to talk about this thing that I don't really like talking about because it's going to help you and it's going to bind us closer together. You're going to know something about me that you didn't know before. And also there's a way forward. Like we can just, you know, yeah. we're going to get through this and it, it, you have to understand the power of a story to take that out that story you don't want to tell and say, I'm going to share this with you because we're going to get closer. And I want you to know something that's true about the world. Right. Isn't there um, a, a sense of, of appropriateness of place and sharing and, audience yeah. and connection? Because if you took that story out to every stranger you met, every right. <laughs> you had with the student, every, everything, people would be like, Whoa, back up. Lady. That's a bit much. That's a bit much, Rachel. <laughs> But I think, I think the right story in the right place means you heard her. Yeah. You understood her and you connected. Right. And, and you were willing to take that risk with her. Yeah, exactly. Because I mean, she could have heard your story and went, mm, you know, like, and yeah. Worse, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, Sherry, it's such a good, that's so good to come back to like a safe space and place for sure. But then also how we receive other people's stories and the feeling of empathy and this, this place where we can short share stories without it being becoming about me or becoming just about you, but that we're in space together and you say, this thing happens to me. And I say, this thing happened to me. And let's compare that and talk about how that was hard for you. And it's hard for me, right? Whatever those, those what pieces and what didn't and why they're the same and why they're different. And it becomes a conversation. That's really yeah. Wonderful. yeah. And I find that to be true. Like when I was working with students, I was saying the other day about sharing vulnerabilities. And when I would say like, Hey, I was not a good college student. I really struggled. I didn't go to class. I, these things were happening that then all of a sudden becomes a conversation where they can say, well, why is that? Or what happened there? Or right. That sounds really similar to me instead of me being like, and you need to do these things. Cause again, those are facts. That is not a story. That, that is not going to resonate with the person. Well, and, and you're using the story for connection. You're not using the story to tell them what to do. Right. There is a purpose, a direction. But I, I always think of it, this connection space is a discussion space. It's not a lecture space. Yeah. So you can lecture a story. And it. Yeah. We've all lectured a teenager. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's exactly right. You and. You have to, the way that you know how to tell a good story is you do have to understand the heart of it, right? You, you can tell the facts of a story. You can lecture a story, but it means that you've missed this sacred thing that you're trying to transmit to your students about how sometimes it's hard, but they can be successful or how they're an important part of the community, right? Totally different than just being like, yeah, of course you belong here. What's the problem? <laughs> As you said, it, it goes back to vulnerability. If yeah. I'm a lecturer, I'm not vulnerable. Yeah, not at all. There's I'm no conversation. Right? Like, yeah. I'm just <laughs> that out at you. Yeah, just <laughs> absorb everything I'm telling you right now. That's what you need to know. Um, I was thinking about how 
so redefining processes and, and pulling this idea of storytelling back to establishing a purpose. And I was wondering about looking at processes on your campus that maybe aren't tied to purpose, don't have a student perspective on story. Um, Matt and I worked for a campus several years ago that is a very small campus, but they serve Alaska natives. And they had a, an orientation process that was very much in the way that we're talking about a lecture. So it was like, okay, come to campus now, get your key. Now, now that you have your key, now you have to go do this thing. And now that you've done that, then you've got to meet with your advisor and then you've got to pay your bill. And then you've got all this kind of stuff. Right. And it was a really um, vulnerable population. They were, they were coming oftentimes from villages where people didn't have college degrees. And so it was a very, the nice thing was they were all very similar in terms of past experiences, but they were very vulnerable. And so we did this process where we just said, we are gonna take control of orientation and we're gonna pretend like every single thing that they do in this process has a purpose. And so we just went through and said, okay, the very first thing on Thursday, your theme is you belong here. And so when you get to campus, you're going to be welcomed. You're going to be shown to your room. We're going to be telling our RAs and RDs to be talking about, oh my gosh, we've been longing for today. We have been looking for, we've been preparing this place for you, waiting for you to come. We are so excited you're here. And Every element of what was happening on that day was this idea of you belong with us. You're in the right place. This is the community you belong to. We're going to cast a vision for how we're going to be together. I want you to remember this day because in four years, when we graduate, we're going to, we're going to go back and remember yeah. you were welcomed. You belong there. So first day you belong. Second day is you're going to be a successful scholar. So the narrative there is basically we have classrooms and computers and coffee and community space and rooms for you to rest. And there are faculty and tutors and mentors and yeah. anyone else you can think of. And we've designed this space for you to be able to be successful. And so we just gave them that language of you are a scholar going on and on and on to think about like, here's how you're, you're a key community member. Here's how you're gonna act in our community. And then the last day was uh, Sunday. So we said, you know, you have to practice rest and we're gonna teach you. This is so important in college. I say all that to say, Sherry, that if we picked any process and we went through, and I think the, I think the right um, thought exercise is to say, what is the theme of this thing. So the theme of students coming on the first day is you belong with us, right? And then we go through and we say, where are the places where we can send implicit and explicit messages that are going to communicate that theme? How are we going to use specific language? And then how do we, oh, also solve the problem of you need your key and you've got to go see your advisor and pay your bill, right? Um, it's just such a beautiful way to think about orientation as telling a story with all of these elements that are inviting your students deeper and deeper and deeper into community. And um, I just love thinking about any of those processes on campus and saying, what if we said every single element here has to have a purpose? Wouldn't that be so fun? I could do that all day long. I really could. I think it would be such a fun job to just be like, okay, well, we need students to register for classes. So how are we going to 
say what's the most important thing about that and then build in all of these messages about your scholar, you're going to be successful. I get very excited about language. You know, that's true. <laughs> okay, so anything else that you want to add about storytelling or message for our students establishing purpose before we move over to our student life colleagues, academic colleagues? Okay, so let's shift gears a little bit and you and I had a conversation beforehand about this idea of tying our work to purpose. Um, like I said at the beginning, I think that we in higher ed have purpose so much at the center of our work. And I think one of the ways that we've lost uh, our way a little bit in the last two years is that we, so I think COVID did two things for us that really I think are the reason why we're exhausted and feeling a little bit overwhelmed. I don't know if you've had this, Sherry, but I'm pretty sure that everybody I've talked to in the last month and a half, I think it's because we're at the end of the semester and summer is, is close, but not here yet. Everyone is just like, I am tired in a way that, that I wasn't even in the fall when I thought I was tired or tired in the spring when I thought I was tired or, you know, it just seems like it's hitting everybody now. Have you had this experience with your yeah, people? Yeah. Your and I hate to say it, the words that come to mind aren't pretty. I'm fried and burnt out. I'm, there are days where I feel cynical and nothing is worse than that to me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, like where you're just like, ah! yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And, and they are signs of burnout. Yeah. Uh, to one extent or another, we're tired. We're tired. And so trying to think about for people who purpose is so important before COVID, Anybody that you talk to in higher education, whether it's faculty or student life people, like we know why we're doing what we're doing. We believe in it. It's important. It impacts the world for good. We name our students. We see them, right? Like we are not confused about the value of our work. And I think part of what COVID did, it's, it's kind of twofold. One is that it reframed our work. Um, in terms of why are we doing it? We're doing it because there's a pandemic. We're, you, you, everybody stay home because there's a pandemic. Everybody stay home because, or keep your mask on because there's a pandemic. Yes, there are there are bigger reasons, right? You were really good to be like, hey, but also we're protecting each other and we're we're trying to make sure that everyone's safe. Um, but so much of like, I'm thinking about COVID management. Like, why? am I opening all of these cases and managing them and doing tests and blah, 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 because there's a pandemic. And so I think we got a little, because we're tired, we got that disconnected from our purposeful work, which is exhausting when you're just doing a thing because you have to do the thing because that's what's going on. That is not conducive to joyful, life-giving work. Um, and you, you actually have a lot to say about how important it is for people to feel like they have a vision for their work and like it's important and they're going to be learning and growing, right? Well, I've been, I've been reading everything I can read over the last two months about happiness. Mm, I like <laughs> so, it. I, well, and, 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 you know, and at one level, it's really like, I've been reading about happiness, happiness at work, engagement, fun, optimism, and, and 
and it's really interesting stuff, but um, a couple things that strike me that maybe relate to what we're talking about. One is the sort of, um, when you break down happiness and you look at the happiness research, a lot of people talk about it being combined pleasure, like feeling good feelings and that kind of stuff. Engagement. You can't be happy if you're not involved and engaged in something, right? Yeah. And the third one is purpose. Oh. Because without purpose, it's just, I don't know, hedonistic, like, and you see people who get that way without purpose. For sure. But for happiness, purpose is part of it. Yeah. I, but I was listening to you talk and the, the one concern that I have that I hear is, and, and I read an article earlier today about it, is we, we have somehow or another told ourselves that work, it, we should love our work and it should have huge purpose. Yeah. But, and it should, like that's ideal, right? But, but we somehow lost the, it still has to have boundaries <laughs> and we still have to put boundaries around it yes. and we still have to protect ourselves and give ourselves fun and happiness that isn't work. Absolutely. And I think Absolutely. that is where, to me, where burnout and everything I've read um, about sort of happiness and engagement, a lot of times it's really hard to think about how to measure it because it's almost the opposite of burnout. Yeah. And I don't want to measure the opposite of burnout. I'd rather <laughs> measure something more inspirational and, and more exciting. Um, but if you think about burnout, burnout is boredom, disengagement, disconnection, all yeah. of those things. And it doesn't come from only a lack of purpose. It does come from, I'm tired. Yeah. I've got too much. I can't continue at this pace. I can't, I can't keep giving. Yeah. I, I like that's and actually yeah. I I really appreciate that because I I actually think that it is a place where where higher education professionals are particularly um in trouble because the benefit of having your work be tied to purpose and something you believe in is that you get to do purposeful work which how could that be bad right but the hardship is that then when it is purposeful, you're never really sure when you're allowed to say that's enough. Like, I don't, I don't have any more to give here. I'm going to say no to things. I'm going to not do these things because there is an intrinsic, like I'm doing this for the good of whatever. Right. And so I do think it is such a community of giving people um, that then can be really exhausted and worn out, even if they understand the purpose of the work, right? And, I, and I'm looking at this student, and for me to say no means something for that student. Right. And and that's not, like, when, when you embrace purpose and, and forget about boundaries, my purpose says I should do this. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Like my purpose says I should keep giving. I should keep going. Um, I also think that there are many, many, many of us and many professions and many departments who um, may talk a good game about balance. And yet, as you said, every signal. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> every signal says, I, I'm, and it is 
the exception when you see somebody who doesn't or who like I I'm I'm one of those really adamant managers of no on your vacation I don't want you working and yet people are like well it's only email no 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 Stop. <laughs> but, but, but it's interesting how ingrained that is with really conscientious like lovely people yeah. it's hard for them to truly step away yeah. or to put a boundary or to whatever it may be and I, I also think, and this may be me, so forgive me if it's just me, it's also <laughs> ego involved. If yeah. I step away, it won't get done. I can do it. It, it will only take me 10 minutes. It will, right. like, sooner or later, you, you got to say, somebody else can do it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, hey, that's exactly right. I'm so important to this process or this whatever that they, if I step away, what's going to happen? It'll be fine. I mean, we like you, we want you to do your work, but also it's okay. You know, um, and if it's not okay, then that's the problem. It's not you. That's exactly right. Sherry. I, I think about, I have seen this so often at a university where somebody who does all the things quits and then they hire five people. And I'm like, Hey, it's really unfortunate that the way that that becomes transparent, that you were using up this person because they were doing five roles instead of one is that they're so burnt out that they have to go. And then you're like, Oh my goodness, there were so many things on her plate. We should, we need five more people. Right. Instead of before that happens being like, Hey, you need to step out of all of these things because we need to get you some help because we want you to be that. We want this to be sustainable for you. Right. Not that it should be a conversation, right? I should be in a safe enough place where I say, you know what? I can't keep this up. Yeah. And I should be in a safe enough place that those around me say, Oh, okay. Let's figure out how to, how to help. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's really Um, funny. I think of a couple of places where somebody was so important that they refused to give up anything, but they mostly were doing a terrible job. Not really their fault. They just couldn't, they had too many things to do, you know? And then it was like such a huge decision for them to be like, I need help. And this is, and we're like, we know, yes, we see that you need help. You're kind of doing a terrible job. We would love to resource you if you will let us do that. Um, but having the freedom and the confidence to come and be like, I have too many things. I'm not doing a great job. I think is really, really difficult for people to do. And, and to be fair, sometimes not safe, right? Some people, sometimes people are like, no, you have to keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. So, um, okay. Well, one other thing that I want to pull out of this book is they ask as we're tying our work to a purpose, what are the beacons that focus our attention and engagement on our end goal? And I'm really conflicted about this because again, I think that in higher education, higher education loves pomp and circumstance and they really love like these beacons of graduation and we have orientation and we have like, we love that stuff, right? Um, But I think the double whammy of COVID is that we both took our eye off of this purposeful work, the the purpose that we had before. And now we're like, okay, now it's COVID. Now this is what we're doing. But also it 
yanked out from under us these beacons that remind us of why we do what we do. So graduation is canceled, orientation is canceled. We're not going to have faculty in the classroom with our students, which is where they're getting life. We don't have res halls with students in there, which is where student life, you know, is connecting with them. All of these little things that we normally, I don't get to work with my colleagues. I don't get to be in the same place with them, striving towards the same goal. We're not having our staff meetings in the same space, right? Where we're reminding each other, like, hey, you're doing a good job. This is why we're doing this. Um, and I think we are missing those beacons that pull us back to this is why we're doing what we're doing. And I was thinking, Sherry, what you were saying about being in the same space with someone. So you guys are back in the office occasionally together? We're doing hybrid. And I think um, we're doing hybrid for a variety of reasons. Um, I, I will tell you the one that surprised me the most is the fact that we're super productive alone at home. Yeah. <laughs> so at home, I can sit down and I can pound through things and not have interruptions and other things. So that's been really interesting. On the flip, we've, we've gone back a couple of days, like we're going back about one day a week right now. I think in that three hour morning that we were back, we got two days worth of homework done. Yeah. Like, so it was fascinating. Now we purposely, and I, I was really deliberate about this with my team. Let's make a list of the things that would benefit us being together in the same room to talk about yeah. things. We need a whiteboard. I love whiteboards. Yeah. I've been missing my whiteboard. What do we need the whiteboard for? What do we need to look at? Let's make a list of those. And I thought we had a list that was going to carry us for three weeks and it carried us for three hours. Yeah. And just pounded through it. So um, that was really actually lovely. Like, you know, that, that kind of, and we laughed and we had a good time. So I, I think, again, you know, to your beacon kind of point, we had this list and we checked things off and it was awesome. Yeah. And we had the time together. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I think like, for me, that's been part of the transition of, uh, you know, what is our goal? Our goal is to get these things done and get them done well. And so to kind of keep reminding everybody as we make decisions, should we be back? Should we not be back? Where should we be? Goal, 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 goal. Let's figure out the goal. Here's a list of things we think we can do faster in person. Let's get together in person. Yeah, I think that's great. I think we are really, really thirsty for that in-person piece that just cannot be duplicated elsewhere. Yes. And I I think, I mean, I know so many of our schools are back in person. I know you guys had graduation and that's um, exciting for everyone to be back. But I do think we're at a deficit, right? Because it's like, we still have to fill up that reminder because we've missed two years of those things. And so we have to... First of all, I mean, you know, I know people don't love this, but I'm a big proponent of like, we have to grieve a thing. We have to say like, yeah, that was really hard. We missed those beacons and we're going to be different because we didn't have them. And then I think moving from survival brain into thriving brain and saying, you guys, we are so close to summer. I am really hoping I was saying at the office today um, we had a lot of direction from leadership during COVID about what we should and should not be doing. So stay home, but we need you to connect with our students, but we need you to manage this thing. And right. So we had a lot of direction from leadership. And I am really hoping that our leadership in all of our different places gives the same amount of direction about you need to have a summer where you are taking care of yourself 
and healing so that we can get back to fall and you doing this work that you love. So we are really close to summer and I, and I'm thinking about that thriving piece. How do we use the summer? Unlike we've had to do for the last two summers, which is like, oh my gosh, make sure that students are connected. And and you did a great job of that. You guys did an awesome job, but also we've got to build in some of those places to say like, Hey, I want to start fresh in the fall. Um, I was laughing at, I was talking to someone the other day and they were like, I had all these things that I was going to do for the summer. And so every time I had a good idea, I just put it in the summer bucket. And then we had graduation and I like woke up and came to work and I was like, oh no, (laughs) it's the summer, (laughs) everything that I wanted to do. I would say like, when I think about like all the stuff I've been reading about happiness and optimism and everything else, one of the things we have to do this summer is, is bring back some of the joy and fun. Mm-hmm. And, and it doesn't have to be, you know, I, as, as one of my colleagues calls it mandatory fun, <laughs> like, <laughs> mandatory fun. You will have fun. Yeah. Because you know, that alone. Um, and if you, if you're creating mandatory fun, really think carefully about that, but, <laughs> but the fun of the, like we were talking earlier about shared joy, talking mm-hmm. about those stories, talking about the, like even when I was thinking about, I don't know about you, I'm having a ball right now. This year in particular, um, I'm old, so I use Facebook. <laughs> but seeing everybody's graduation pictures this year to me has a different level of meaning and joy. So maybe that's my way of grieving is also celebrating this. Oh my God, it's so fun to see all the pictures and to see who's doing this and see the transitions and yeah. and to kind of have those shared joy points, I think will help us. Yeah. If we can think about what those are, think about how to make sure we have them for us, for our students, everything. Well, it is for sure uh, re being reacquainted with what those things mean to us because we've been without them. And so that is definitely when you remove those beacons that remind us of the importance of the work that we do, and then you slowly reintroduce them, they do hit differently, right? Because you are like, oh my goodness, I I haven't had this thing that was so important to me for two years, and now we're getting to do those things. And it is just such a reminder of... Um, a joyful life and a life where we get to be together and do important things and, and do purposeful work. And you said this before we started, and I think it's so true that the things that we do not mourn having missed for two years, those things were not important. And the things that are important like being able to be together in a classroom or being able to do purposeful work or what have graduation or whatever, the things that we missed, those we can be sure of are valuable, right? Because it's, it's not like we didn't do it for two years and we're like, who cares about that? That's stupid. Why do we even do graduation? It's dumb. Like it, right. We were like, oh my goodness, that is really, really important. And as soon as we can, we have to get back to that. And so it absolutely clarifies the things that are important to us and how they're connected to our purpose. Yeah. Yeah. So good. All right. Listen, normally I have action items for us, but you guys, everyone's tired. 
So I'm not going to give you any more action items. Summer is here. You've already built your action item list over the past two semesters of stuff that you were going to do this summer. So you already have it. The only action item that I have for you is to find some time to take care of yourself and to be renewed so that when we start this again in the fall, which I'm not talking about because it's a long time from now and we have plenty of time, don't panic. Um, <laughs> you have worked really hard this summer to take care of yourself. So that is my action item that I'm leaving you guys with. Um, hey, can I tell you one other thing that yes. may or may not help? Yes, please. We think of summer. Um, one of the other crazy books I read lately was all about fun. Oh, and, and there, she talks about real fun versus not real fun, like super fun. I don't know, whatever the language, it was super interesting. Three things make up fun, playful. Okay. So that's, you know, not serious, playful flow, meaning you're present there. Okay. So you're present in making music and engaging with your kid, you're present in your flow. And the third one, super interesting connection. Oh, that is interesting. Okay. Tell us again. So we have, so, so sorry guys, you are going to have an action item. Your action item is to build in some fun for yourself this summer, including the following three elements. Well, and it's, it's your version of fun because everybody's is going to look different. Something yeah. playful in the flow, in the moment and the connection. And she talked about usually connection is a person, but it could also be connection with nature or connection with something. Something hmm. else. And I thought, you know, every, like, if you really start thinking about what's real fun, not the stuff you think you should love, (laughs) like enjoy fun. And I thought, okay, now I'm going to start, you know, thinking about what's real fun to me. Yeah, that's great. I love it. Um, Okay, you guys, housekeeping notes. So we are going to take off June and July because we are also going to be refreshed this summer. Um, But Anthony Melchiori is joining me next week and the week after. So he's going to finish out our last two sessions, which you guys know is always a wild ride. So please join us for that. Um, And then we'll take off the summer and then we will think about uh, what's going to happen in August with our new episodes. You guys know if you have um, people that you'd love to have on the program, I'm happy to hear about that. But in the meantime, again, every time we spend time with you, Sherry, we learn something new. I feel like I'm always inspired and I um, always have to go back and be like, okay, I've got to think about these three things that Sherry said. So thank you so much for spending time with us. Fun is a way more fun one to be left with. Yeah. Thank you. I said, yes, I thank you. I said at the beginning of this, like, Hey, I'm feeling a little sad about this one. She was like, it's fine. We're going to do a great job and we're going to end with fun. So it's perfect. Thank you, friend. Good to see you. Good to see you too.